This is TK331, a Star Wars EU slash Legends podcast. I'm Crystal, a Star Wars enthusiast, but I've never read a thing I liked that I couldn't complain about a little bit. And I'm Thomas, a Star Wars completionist who's previously read the entirety of the EU. So today we're returning to Tales from the Most Isley Cantina, and we're reading The Sandtender, The Hammerhead's Tale, the fifth short story in the collection. Written by Dave Wolverton and edited by Kevin J. Anderson. This is the first short story that we've read by Wolverton. His second story overall for the podcast, the first one was Courtship, or the book which shall not be named. He also has a short story in the Tales from Jabba's Palace and Tales of the Bounty Hunters collections. The Sand Tender picks up with the tale of Muftok and Kalbe left off with Momonadon. He's been exiled by his people, and the man responsible for it is on Tatooine. Ithorians are known as a peaceful species, and he struggles with the decision of what is the right thing to do in the situation. Much like our friend Muftok, apparently Moma is the only Ithorian on Tatooine. Makes sense. And by that I mean Muftok is the only Tals on Tatooine. He's obviously not an Ithorian. Yes. That makes sense. Ithorians and deserts don't exactly mix. Yeah, it seems like they're... I'm trying to decide if they have skin or hide or scales. I think it's... I have skin or hide. A kind of hardened hide. Not hardened, but thicker. Like it's a thicker skin than ours. Uh, it seems like it needs moisture. Yeah. And Tatooine... Not a moist place? Unless you're around the moisture boy, I guess. <laughs> so just like Mubzak, Moma is lonely and misses his home, but he at least does know what he is and where he's from. Who on this godforsaken planet doesn't want to go home? Fair enough. <laughs> so things open with... Muftok and Moma talking to each other. Muftok has just learned that he's a Tals, and he's very excited by this revelation. If you remember back from the previous short story, it's been a couple months because we had a bit, a bit of a detour, but the Stormtroopers accidentally let slip that he's a Tals, unintentionally. Mm-hmm. So that's what just happened, and Muftok is very excited about this. And we'd actually already seen this scene from Muftok's perspective in the previous short story. Moma has never heard of a Tals, but promises... Muftok that he'll see what he can find out about them. Uh, Muftok also tells Moma about Lieutenant Alima, and Moma asks if Muftok can find out if this is the same Alima who was on the Star Destroyer Conquest. Muftok notes that the men around him apparently don't like Alima. He seems like he's an outcast. He was probably recently demoted, and he's fallen in social standing as well. So he thinks it's a pretty good chance that this is the same Alima who Moma knows. Turns out, Moma is a rebel spy, and has been trying to stay off the Imperials' radar, but his sympathies are, I guess, well-known within the town, within Mos Eisley. He's not a secret agent Ithorian. Secret agent Ithorian. It's got a ring to it. It's got too many syllables. <laughs> Here on Tatooine, Moma has a grove of Sidorian driller trees out in the desert, and amazed at his green thumb. Uh, He goes to them to try to calm himself down after the Olima revelation. He is trying to plant what he can on Tatooine and see what can survive. And he's doing it through, like, gene therapy. Like, he's splicing other stuff into these trees to try and make it so that they'll survive in this completely inhospitable environment. And while he's visiting these trees, we get some backstory on Moma. He was a high priest on Aethor and lived on a floating city called Tefanda Bay. And apparently, like, Winter and who else? 
Um, there's someone else. Uh, Mama has a flawless memory. Uh, the Imperial guy from the... Curtain Lore. Yeah, that guy. Glad that you got that from my... <laughs> the Imperial guy. Very descriptive. I was about to not say from the X-Wing books. Uh, Mama also has a wife. He was married on Ithor. And apparently Ithor is famous for its floating cities, which are known as her trips, and the Tefanda Bay is the largest and finest of them all. And Moma himself was renowned for his knowledge of many agricultural ceremonies on Ithor. But unfortunately, Captain Olima forced him to reveal the secrets of Ithorian tech to the Empire, and as a result, Moma was exiled from Ithor by his own people. Uh, and he chose Tatooine as his place of exile, which basically he chose it because Tatooine, a terrible, horrible desert wasteland, is the Ithorian equivalent of hell. <laughs> But he is trying to raise plants that can survive in this harsh climate as a way to atone for what he did. The Authorians have this thing called the Law of Life, that for every plant destroyed in the harvest, two must be planted to replace it. Uh, also, they're only al allowed to harvest plants that are not self-aware, since many plants on Ithor are conscious beings. What a weird situation. But cool. It is cool. Moma initially refused to give up the Ithorian secrets to Olima, but Olima turned the ship's guns on Cathor Hills and destroyed thousands of what are called Baffor trees. Which are... Really sentient in yeah. groups, as long as they're together. And really just special to the Ithorians. Olima then threatened to defend a bay, and at that point Moma gave up Ithor's secrets to save his people. Per Moma's request, Muvtok sells Moma's name to Olima, letting the Imperial agent know that the Ithorian is on planet. Moma has his own small grove of before trees at home, seven in total. He wants to kill Olima. That's part of his whole plan of, of having Muvtok sell his name to Olima so that Olima will come after him and then he can kill him. But the trees tell him that he can't kill Olima. Moma had made a vow to always honor the Thorian law of life, so they say he can't kill him yet. If Moma does kill Olima or even arranges for his death, then the Before Trees will no longer be able to tolerate Moma's touch, making him even more of an exile than he already is. He can't even talk to the trees. Alima shows up at Moma's home, and Moma comments kind of snarkily on Alima's devotion. Alima says that only a fool would want to captain Vader's ship because of the mortality rate. And That's this is, accurate. Yeah, this is the one time, like, Alima, in this one instance, you're smart. Very smart. Before Alima's arrival, Moma had set up a trap with some of his plants, but Alima doesn't walk into it. He recognizes the danger around him, so he just shoots one of the before trees instead and kills it. Alima then tells Moma that he must get in the location of the droids by tomorrow. If he doesn't, Alima will destroy the rest of the before trees and help make Moma watch. So basically the bait here was Muftok sold not only Moma's name to Alima, but also said that Moma knew where the droids were. Or at least knew about the rebellion. Yeah. With only six remaining before trees, they can no longer reach true sentience. They need seven to really do that. Interesting choice. Despite there being only six, Moma asks if he may now kill Alima. If the trees still have enough sentience to tell him no. Silliness. Absolute silliness. Uh, Moma briefly wonders if selling the droids to the Empire would be worth it in order to save his plants. But the thought is so revolting to him that he quickly decides he can't do it. Moma buys a blaster as he's decided to find Alima and kill him, even though it means the trees will never talk to him again. So he tracks Alima down, sort of forces him into an alley, but 
Alima is able to trick Moma into thinking that Moma's blaster is set to stun instead of kill, even though Moma double-checked beforehand that the blaster was set to kill, but he's still so unfamiliar with the weaponry that he looks down to see if the blaster is really set to stun instead of kill, and Alima uses that opening to, like, neutralize him. I can't look at it as when I check my keys five times before I leave the house to make sure they're in my pocket still. <sighs> sure, but you'd think you'd have a little bit more, like clarity on whether or not you turned on a deadly weapon than about the keys thing. The keys thing is something we do every day and that's why it's so easy to forget, right? Because it's you go through the motion so many times, it's like well, did I do that today or did I do it yesterday? This guy has never picked up a blaster before, so you'd think he'd have like but he has no confidence, so you know. As Lima walks away, he reminds Momo that he must give the droids location to him by tomorrow or Momo will live to regret it. Apparently, the Ithorian elders believed in the possibility of good in Alima and the Empire, while Moma argued to them that the Empire was a weed that must be destroyed. Years later, the Empire's actions have really only made Moma's belief stronger. The next day, Moma goes to the cantina to say goodbye to Muftok, and while there, he sees Obi-Wan get a little chop-happy with his lightsaber, as well as an unfamiliar moisture boy. He's saying goodbye to Muftok because he thinks he's going to die. And also, I think at this point in Muftok's timeline, Muftok is getting ready to leave as well, possibly. No? Mm-hmm. Was that late? You're right, that was later. Because the scene where, uh, in that story where Obi-Wan delims a guy, is when Kabe is still trying to steal from him. That's right. That's right. So that's earlier. It's after this is when they would go into Jabba's... Townhouse. Thank you. I was like, it's not hostile, what is it? Hostile! <laughs> uh... You heard it here first, folks. Jabba runs a hostel in Moss Eisley. <laughs> Weird business venture for him. So Mama sees Kenobi talk with Han and realizes that Kenobi has the droids and is trying to smuggle them off planet. For a moment, he's ready to go to Alima and give up the droids, but then Ben walks by and looks into his eyes, and Mama looks away, ashamed that for a moment he was willing to sacrifice others for himself and his plans. Yeah, Moma had seen the droids enter with Luke, they were, the droids were kicked out, he saw Luke with Ben, he saw Ben with Han, and just kind of put two, two, and two together and got six. Congratulations on his arithmetic skills. <laughs> and then Moma sees the Falcon blasting out of Moss Eisley, and since he knows that it's Han Solo's ship, he realizes that the droids were on board and have gotten away. He sees the stormtroopers after the ship got away, and the captain of the stormtroopers really wants someone to blame for letting the droids escape. So, Momo says, he steps forward, he says, you know what? You see Alim over there? He knew about the droids. And the captain asks Momo if he'd swear to it under oath, and Momo says yes. Momo says yes, assuming that Alima will be arrested and taken to trial and end up in jail for a long time after he gives his testimony, or at the very least, demoted again. But instead, the captain just pulls out his blaster and shoots Alima, killing him instantly. <laughs> Momo is shocked, realizing that his plan to imprison Alima has backfired. And he blames himself and knows that he must now take penance for causing the death of a sentient being. So he takes two genetic samples from Alima's body. He's going to clone Alima and raise the offspring as his own twin sons for his penance. So weird. A little bit. The story ends with Alima heading back to Ithor, where the Ithorians have cloning tanks and him thinking of his wife, who's had to wait for him if he ever returned. So, what did you like or dislike about this? Very, very short story. Oh, it's really starting to feel like Groundhog Day in here. (laughs) 
I feel trapped and claustrophobic and I need to get out. We've seen this delimiting moment in the cantina so many times now. I really just don't feel like anchoring all of these stories around this moment was a good idea. Yeah, I, I like seeing it from different perspectives, but it's almost too many perspectives at this point. It's I not almost. It is. Yeah, I, I feel like there's so many, so many like different camera angles you can look at a delimiting from and go, huh? That that was good. <laughs> I do think later short story collections are not centered around one event the way this one is. It's more one idea. That's good, because that was the impression that I got from this to begin with, was that we would just sort of be... Moving forward? Not not even moving forward, but just that we would be exploring the lives of the denizens of this cantina, not necessarily on this exact day. It could be within, like, a month or so of that day, just because if you go further out than that, then maybe none of these people are still frequenting this cantina, given how people just tend to get shot and die here. But, you know, like, we don't need to see Obi-Wan take this guy's arm off again and again and again. Get a a close-in picture about how everybody feels about that. There's only so many ways I can describe differently Obi-Wan chopping off someone's arm in these notes. Yeah. I've settled on delimiting, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) So, similar to Courtship, I feel like Wolverton's greatest strength is his world building. In Courtship, it was about Hapes and the Witches of Dathomir. Those are among the book's best parts, I thought. In this, it's his world building and descriptions of I-4. I really think it's a really fascinating planet. This uh, species of... They're hippies. They're peaceful hippies. And if they kill a tree, they've got to plant two new ones in its place. And in a galaxy as violent and often at war as Star Wars, I think it's a really interesting planet to think about and create. Mm-hmm. And I, I particularly like the, uh, the before trees. Because, you know, sentient plant life is a... It's a really cool science fiction subject that Star Wars doesn't do a ton with. Um, and we are seeing some of that with the Higher Republic with the Drainier, obviously, but that's very different than what's on i mm-hmm. uh, So, but yeah, I, I like that kind of stuff. That just weird sci-fi stuff. Yeah, I agree with you. The world building for the Athorians was neat, even though we weren't even there. We just got a bunch of, like, exposition dump. And But I, I think one of the things that impressive about it was because we weren't even there and it still was interesting to read about. It was interesting to read about, however, like, I wouldn't usually do this. Like, just be like, okay, I have this character who's somewhere else entirely and now I'm going to drop paragraph after paragraph of exposition about what their life used to be like. It's not the most sophisticated storytelling. It's not, but I also feel like Wolverine's not the only one to do this in this collection. He's limited by the event of Luke and Ben entering, entering the cantina. Yeah, I guess. Anyway, this started out as complimentary and quickly devolved, but <laughs> I did like that world building. I like the idea of these plant-loving people who worship life and are peaceful, but they are complex in the sense that they... It feels like they have a very complex society that incorporates these sentient plants. Moma's exile seems nonsensical to me, but is it is supported by the societal logic that exists on Ithor and in the text. Ithorians seem very Jedi-ish in some ways, including ways that I dislike, like punishing Moma for bartering the tech, which was the only way to save his home. Yeah, I agree. But again, there's like a a textual basis for that, so like it I feel like it's supposed to annoy me. This is also top of mind just because Wheel of Time has been going on recently. There has been brought back into my space it reminds me of the way of the leaf Mm, the tinkers yeah 
there's something very frustrating about people who won't even defend their own lives. But that's that doesn't mean that they shouldn't exist in the world. They clearly do. I think they exist in our world. Yep. But I just find them nonsensical. <laughs> um, and the plant stuff and the gene work was also pretty cool. I believed in MoMA's conviction in making Tatooine more livable. Yeah, I really like that aspect. It was actually in Star Wars Visions, one of the shorts was about making any deserts planets more green. And I wonder if there was if given those Japanese anime, they probably never read this, but if they had it, this was some inspiration for it. Maybe. So I think one of my favorite parts of this story was Momo's description of the Empire as a weed. For Gardner, this feels like a perfect description. The Empire is an invasive species that takes over and kills off native populations just as a weed does in a garden. And I think that just fits perfectly. Chokes the life out of them. Like our poor, poor rosebush. Yep. I also would like to see more of Momo's work with Rebellion. It was mentioned, but nothing was really done with it in the story, which is kind of there. Like, it's known he's a sympathizer with the rebellion and helps them out. But what does he do there? No idea. No idea. Yeah. So I would have liked, I think, a little more focus on that aspect. And, and like I said, like, this is a very short story. There was, I, I think Wolfram had some room to do a little more with it. Room, but perhaps no inspiration. So yeah, I felt like the actual conflict in the story really left something to be desired. Mama showed moments of agency, like luring Alima to his house, but he also fell prey a lot to just letting stuff happen to him, which seems like a species trait, honestly. This was at least in part because he was torn between his personal moral code, which conflicts with his society's moral code, like he thinks he should be allowed to kill this guy, but he still has all of that programming that says you can't kill this guy. But and anyway. And the trees are even outright saying you still can't kill yeah, this guy. I am the wise before a tree, and I say you may not kill this man, even though he just shot us. But after so many blaster fumbles, I just got really impatient with how he's, I don't know, just so kind of incompetent. And then we didn't nece- we didn't quite get into this in the plot summary, but there's a, a part near the end before the Millennium Falcon leaves where Mama has just sort of resigned himself to die. He's taking his plants out into the alley back behind his place because he knows that Alima and probably some thugs are going to come for him and he hopes he can save the plants by putting them outside when they inevitably decide to torch his home. And he's just like, well, I guess I just gotta let it happen. You don't. Alima was also really overly villainous, evil, mustache twirling. His dialogue was ridiculous. That's that. Um... (laughs) And the resolution of the story was really hard for me to believe. Like, Mama had somehow cheated away to the solution for the problem. He didn't actually end up having to make any difficult choices. Because he thought he was doing one thing. And then an Imperial shoots another Imperial. Which, fine. I can totally believe. But just on the word of an alien? And not even a near-human alien. Thorians do not look near-human. And this guy really just shot Alima. Like, I do not buy it, no matter how fallen in rank and, I don't know, approval Alima was. I would really rather have seen Moma's work with the Rebellion on Tatooine. Like, what other irons do they have in the fire on this planet? Because so far, we really just know about the one. And I guess the thing that happened in the Muftak and Kabe story, that guy was doing something. And the stuff back in Hammerton. But, like, we don't get to see the operation, really. They're just random agents who have stuff. 
And it seemed like this character was a good way to show more of that operation on Tatooine and that wasn't taken. They could have even shown how, like, how are those operations related to his plant science? Because that seems like a useful thing for a rebellion to have. A rebellion who needs to feed people that are working for them in inhospitable places like Tatooine and Hoth. I also didn't understand why Momo thought his people would take him back now. Like... So actually, when I was writing my notes, I had a thought about this. Okay. He has committed a new crime. And he has to do penance for. But the only way to do that penance is back on Ithor with their cloning texts. He can't do that on Tatooine. That just seems silly to me. That's how I read it when I was looking over it again. And then the second part of this is, is it even really worth it if he has to raise two clones of a Lima? That's what penance is, right? Like, if it was me, I would be like, no, it's okay. I'll just be alone with my non-sentient plants forever. <laughs> but I'm also not a social being, so that wouldn't hurt me very much. Anyway, conflict lacking. I agree the ending was strange. I like that Momo was trying to get Alima arrested or demoted, uh, but was not surprised by Alima's death. But I also agree that it doesn't seem quite in character for an Imperial captain to take the word of an alien to shoot another Imperial officer. I feel like the only way that really works is if the Imperial captain knows that Vader is coming and is going to need someone to punish, someone to blame for the droids getting away. And you think that Vader's going to be happy that someone has made that choice for him? Are you, are they insane? They're working for the Empire and under Vader. That's the how in my head I can make that work. But they should know Vader better than that. They might not. But also, like, Vader clearly never comes down to Tatooine. He just follows the droids, so... Yeah. It's all for not in the end. Whatever. As for Alima's clones, given the Ithorian law of life, it makes sense, but it does feel weird, and it doesn't feel like it fits into canon all that well, frankly. I'm actually surprised that they let one of the short story authors touch on the subject of cloning, after how much Lucas has protected events that happened before New Hope and events about the Clone Wars. That is surprising. He was so protective of that era. Yeah, I mean... We have read Heir to the Empire, and they do talk about the Clone Wars being several decades ago that always doesn't fit in can because what Lucas told Zahn changed in the intervening years. Mm-hmm. So maybe they're like, because of what they told Zahn, they can kind of like, some people have some technology, but not what it was during the Clone Wars. I really wonder how much you're lying to me right now, just to conceal from me future details in future books. Some of the listeners probably know. I'm sure they do. Don't tell me. (laughs) I like to be surprised. Now, let's check the holonet for messages. This past Sunday, the Twitter account for Wikipedia tweeted out asking Star Wars fans if they had any favorite podcasts. Favorite Star Wars podcasts. Sorry, yes. Favorite Star Wars podcasts. (laughs) There's a lot of Star Wars podcasts, huh? Oh, yes. There are so many. I guess I shouldn't be surprised by that. (laughs) The inherent creativity of people and their ability to produce on that creativity just continually astonishes me. And uh, there was a very nice tweet from Sakura Oni3 where she said that uh, TK331 is her favorite podcast and that she loves listening to us on her way to work. That's really nice. Yeah. It made our weekend, I would say. Yeah. I can't believe we're someone's favorite Star Wars podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was about a year ago, actually, when we were talking about this idea for the podcast, trying to figure out 
what we're going to do. Do we really want to do this? And now we're someone's favorite, and that's just that's really sweet and wonderful. I actually think about a year ago, we had decided we were at least going to try it. We had been displaced from our house into an Airbnb while some work was being done. And I remember reading Truce of Bakura while we were at the Airbnb. That's right. Taking notes. And shortly after getting home from that, we recorded our first episode and published that just a few months later. Yeah, we really wanted to, like, have something in the bank. <laughs> yeah, we. I think we published our first four episodes in the first two months. Yeah. Something like that. That's true. Yeah, it was a, just a really nice uh, tweet from uh, Sakura Unikri. So I'm glad you like this so much. And I hope this message finds you well on your way to work. And thank you again. And that is the Santender, the Hammerhead's Tale. All right, well... How many more things do I have to suffer from Wolverton? Just two. Great. We'd like to discuss it. We've got two more short stories. I will continue to forget. (laughs) (laughs) Next up, we'll be returning to the original Thrawn trilogy. Thank God. (laughs) And reading Dark Force Rising, the second book in that trilogy. Thanks to Thomas for editing. And thanks to Crystal for going along with this crazy idea. Yeah, sometimes it's crazier than other times, huh? And thanks to you for listening. You can email us at tk331podcast at gmail.com, unless you're Dave Wolverton, and follow us on Twitter at tk331podcast. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) If he ever emails us... I'm blaming you for the records. Uh, he's never going to notice us. And now here it is, you want to Star Wars. My friends, Nadon whispered, our enemy Captain Olima is coming. I do not know how to admit this, but I wish to kill him. The bark hummed under his touch, and a pure and holy feeling enervated him, as if light entered his every pore. The soothing mind touch of the sentient trees nearly overwhelmed him with its beauty, but the trees were displeased by his confession. Above him, the black leaves trembled, hissing the words, No, we forbid it. He slew the before of Cathor Hills, Nidon said. He is a murderer, and he killed your brothers so that he could gain greater prestige among evil men. His every intent was impure. You are a priest of Ithor, the woods whispered. You have vowed to honor the law of life. You cannot slay him.